Good morning, my name is Ed. If you're visiting with us and I'm the pastor here, we're really glad to have you. We're also glad to have you if you're not visiting with us. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer about this time together before we get started. Father, thanks so much. Uh, We welcome you and we pray that you would speak to us today. As much as anything, God, we ask you to arrest our attention so that we hear from you. Speak, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this year we're aiming to allow God to take us somewhere new spiritually. Our theme, our goal is uh, we want to go deeper and wider. We're starting the year by reading the whole New Testament together, and thank you for those of you who've already joined. If you haven't and you'd like to join us, there's a devotional guide outside on the table in the lobby. And we're going to spend several Sundays off and on throughout the year talking as we're here on Sunday mornings from some of the passages that we've read during the week. And we did that last week and we'll do it again today. Last week we looked at the book of Romans because this is really awesome. During this time for the first several weeks that we're in this reading, we're going to be reading Matthew and Romans. So last week we looked at Romans and this week we're going to look at a section in Matthew. Now here's what's fascinating. Uh, Last week, I said the passage we covered was perhaps the most important passage in the New Testament. And I meant it. But I have to tell you, I'm not just trying to be epic here. I have to tell you, if you argued against that, then one of the passages that you might have offered in evidence to say, that's not the most important passage in the New Testament, would be the passage that we're talking about this morning. The passage today has been so significant to Christians over the centuries that it has its own name. It's called the Beatitudes, and it's a critically important passage, I think, for those of us who live in Northern Virginia, upper middle income, suburban Americans. I know that those of you who are dog owners, you, you know Caesar, the dog whisperer. I don't even know if he's still on, but you know Caesar was the one who would train owners how to operate with their dogs. But occasionally when he was working with the dog directly, if you're familiar with the show, you'll know that he would often talk to the owners about getting the dog's attention. Because dogs, you know, being dogs, they can get off on something, and then the next thing you know, they're in a fight, or they're lost. Or... And so Caesar, one of his tricks was, you know, you always have a collar leash. Uh, you yank the leash, and you get the dog's attention. This is one of those passages in which I believe God is yanking the leash on our lives and getting our attention. The question that Jesus is answering And today's passage is, what is the good life? What's the good life? And along the way, we're going to get a a subtle new look, a reinterpretation of the Beatitudes. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're reading from the English Standard Version. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to ask you today to read the Beatitudes section, the actual Beatitudes, with me. So let me read the introduction, and then we'll read the Beatitudes part together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus has been operating in Galilee, ministering. Crowds of people are starting to follow him. So a crowd has gathered. He goes up, elevates himself so he can speak to them, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and this is your cue, now read with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pause. Just note that. 
we're going to have a lot to say today about the kingdom of heaven. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that sometimes Jesus will use the phrase kingdom of God. He uses those two phrases interchangeably, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. In fact, Luke, in his biography of Jesus, he has a shortened version of the Beatitudes, and in his version he says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So I wanted you to pause there for a reason. Much of what we say here is going to fall under the title, you know, kingdom of God stuff. All right, let's keep going. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pause again. Notice again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I actually believe technically this is where the Beatitudes end. So I think there are eight in all, beginning with blessed are the poor in spirit and ending with blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then now, in verses 11 and 12, he really just vamps on, he gives us a, a reiteration, he goes a little bit deeper on what he's just said in verse 10 because it's so shocking. So let's read his emphasis and his reiteration of what he's just said in verse 10 and 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is the good life? All right, this question is more important than we think. It fuels our worries. It informs our career decisions. It drives what we buy, where we live, and how we parent. What is the good life? And our answer to that question, the, the way we think about the good life, usually grows out of assumptions that we inherit from our parents and from the culture and from our experience. And our answer to that question, was the good life, is largely unchallenged, often because it's so assumptional. We can't even really name it. It just is. And it's there imposing itself on our values and our choices every day. Now, throughout his ministry, especially in the bit of teaching recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus challenges those assumptions. He jerks on the leash. He gets our attention. Here's what Jesus says. Colon. This is the good life. According to Jesus, the good life is life in the kingdom of God, and it's available to everyone. The good life is life in the kingdom of God, and it's available to everyone, he said, repeating to make sure we get it. The good life is life in the kingdom of God, and it's available to everyone. And we're going to spend the next little while unpacking this. All right. We have to acknowledge at the very outset that we have an alternate vision. Whether we admit it to ourselves or not, we often operate out of an alternate vision, alternate to Jesus' vision. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of having a friendship with a man named Fong. And Fong was a Cambodian refugee who had, as a young boy, had lived, obviously, in Cambodia 
And at the end of the Vietnam War and after the Vietnam War, when the chaos of that spilled over into Laos and Cambodia, many uh, Laotian and Cambodians fled and ended up in disparate places, and Fong's family was among those families traveling throughout Southeast Asia, and they end up in a refugee camp in Thailand. And they spent a couple of years in the refugee camp in Thailand, and then they come to the United States, and of all places, they end up in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. They spend a little time there, and then they heard about a, a large immigrant, Cambodian immigrant community in Boston, so they moved to Boston, and Diane and I at the time were living um, in Boston. So we had the opportunity to meet Fong and get to know him, and I'll never forget that Fong told me one time that he loved America even before he came here. He loved this country. In fact, he loved the American dream. How did you even know that phrase? Fong, how did you know about America? Where did your information about America come from, Fong? And Fong said that when he was in the refugee camp in Cambodia, uh, regularly in the part of the camp that they were in, they would set up a television on weekend nights, and families would gather around the television, and his favorite show was Dallas. <laughs> and some of you are old enough to remember Dallas. Dallas was a weekly show about a fabulously wealthy family that made their money on Texas oil that lived in Dallas. This family had all kinds of problems, but they were beautiful and opulent, and they had extremely comfortable lives. And to Fong, this was the American dream, and we were all living it. He thought all the houses looked like the ranch in Dallas. He thought everybody, all of us, were like J.R. This was the American dream. Maybe the American dream is the good life. Often, we work like it is. We make choices like it is. We act like it is. We train our children like it is. Maybe Dallas has it right. Or maybe Weezer got it right. That's right, the 90s pop band, Weezer. They made songs into the early 2000s. Some of you know Weezer, you should be embarrassed, but Weezer wrote a song called The Good Life. I want to read you the chorus. I'll bet you this chorus has never been read in a church before. This is Weezer's chorus on the song The Good Life. And I don't want to be an old man anymore. It's been a year or two since I was out on the floor shaking booty, making sweet love all night. It's time I got back to the good life. It's time I got back. It's time I got back. I don't even know how I got off track. I want to go back. Yeah. Maybe Weezer got it right. Maybe the good life is really about shaking booty and making sweet love all night. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. I know that sounds ridiculous, especially hearing it here. But that really is the kind of stuff that informs our decisions. That really is kind of what we think. Honestly, this stuff, Dallas and Weezer and TMZ and fashion magazines and sports programming and Amazon and Facebook and beer commercials and blockbuster movies and car ads. This is the stuff that informs our assumptions about the good life. This is the stuff that fuels our worries and informs our career decisions and drives what we buy and where we live and how we parent. I was reading something this week, someone that I thought was going to comment about the Beatitudes, and they didn't. It was an incredible illustration. 
And it really captured my attention. I want you to imagine, they gave an illustration of a Navy pilot who several years ago had crashed in a test flight here in the United States and couldn't understand why. And then they later realized that the Navy pilot was inverted. The plane was upside down and the pilot got disoriented. And when he went to lift, of course, he went straight into the ground. So I want you to imagine that you and I will make this up. You and I are playing a video game and it's a flight game and we can either be inside the cockpit or we can be outside the cockpit. We all want the experience, so we get inside the cockpit and somehow uh, we get inverted, we go upside down. We're flying upside down and we don't realize it because we're inside the cockpit and it's a lot of fun. And what we don't realize is it's fun, it's awesome, we're doing great, we don't realize how much danger we're in. We don't realize that if we accelerate or elevate, which is the point of the game, we're in danger of constantly crashing into the ground. And this is exactly... Jesus' point to these first hearers and to us, you and I are constantly threatening to be flying upside down. And when we do, the real danger of that is anytime we want to elevate or speed up, we are in danger of flying into the ground and not knowing why. We have to right side up our lives. According to Jesus, The good life is life in the kingdom of God and it's available to everyone. That means if at any point at which you're pursuing something other than the kingdom, you're flying upside down. Let's tease this out a bit. Just take a few minutes and answer three questions. Let's go over it again. First question, what is the good life really? Second question, who gets to have it? And then the third question, what does this mean for us? Okay, so question number one, what's the good life really? I mean, not religiously speaking, but really, what's the good life? Jesus, crowd gathers before him, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't mistake this. I have misunderstood this in the past. If you have been with me or where I was, I'm going to subtly reinterpret this for you, and rightly so. I want you to know that The word blessed means fortunate or happy or you're in the right place or you're leading the good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, and they are not blessed because they're poor in spirit. This is not a list of things that you and I are supposed to be. They're blessed because they get the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus isn't saying, so I want terrible things to happen in your life, so you'll mourn. Blessed are those who mourn because if they're in the kingdom, they get comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I pointed out verse 3 and verse 10 when we started this because that kind of gives us the title. This is about life in the kingdom of God. You know, for those of you who are reading Matthew with us, you might remember this, but in chapter 3, verse 2, Matthew does this interesting thing. He gives us kind of a title for John the Baptist's ministry. He sort of gives a summary of John the Baptist's message. You you may remember reading this. In chapter 3, verse 2, amidst the John the Baptist stuff, Matthew says this. Here's what John was saying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing this 
new way of seeing things and doing things, the kingdom, God's kingdom. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and he does the same thing with Jesus. He gives us this summary statement of Jesus' teaching, chapter 4, verse 17, and guess what it is? Here's the summary. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I remember years ago, I was in seminary, and a seminary professor came in one day and asked a room full of seminarians who were going to grow up and be professional religious people like I am. It was the theme of Jesus' ministry, and we all want to impress, so all hands go up. There are several answers offered. You know, some of those answers are elaborate, three paragraphs long. The professor listens politely. Here's some guy talk about connecting to Jesus and blah, 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 blah. No. So he goes to the next prayer. No. Love. It's all about love. No. Well, by this point, we're a little intimidated, so all the hands start to go down. You know what the main theme of Jesus' ministry is, the professor says? I'll tell you how I know it's the main theme, he says, because you add all of those other themes together, and they're not mentioned as much as this one thing, the kingdom of God. And you can't understand Jesus without understanding the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, we live in a democracy, so let's back up a little bit and ask ourselves, what's a kingdom? Kingdom is essentially a right to rule. The power and the right and the place where you rule. I was telling the 9 o'clock service, each of us, in a sense, has a kingdom. You know, we have a, a sphere over which we rule. I rule over my closet. I pick my clothes. Yes, I pick these socks myself. I told the 9 o'clock service, I rule over my yard. I hope none of you go to my house because it's not a very effective rule, but I rule over my yard. We have an area of rulership in our lives, and God does too. God's kingdom is everything. He rules over everything. He's sovereign. So you and I get to say, I agree, and come under that, or not. But the kingdom of God is God's rule over everything, and Jesus, more than anything else, came to announce that. The good life is life in the kingdom of God. This is where we'll be comforted. This is where we'll be satisfied, really satisfied. This is where we'll see God, the kingdom of God. So, second question, who gets the good life? Now, you'll notice that most of these Beatitudes are aimed at people who would not have received the applause of their culture, nor ours, truthfully. Here's what they thought. That group that gathered on that hill that first day, here's what they thought. Blessed are those who are spiritually connected because they're in the right place. They know the who's it's and what's it's and the priests. They thought, blessed are those who know how to work the system. They know how the Romans work, they know how the Jews work, and they're able to work all the angles. Blessed are the wealthy, obviously. Blessed are those who have the right answers spiritually. They've studied the law. They had an opportunity to do so. They know the right stuff. They know exactly what you're supposed to do on Sabbath. They don't ever blow it like me and my family do. Blessed are those who are in the good graces of the powers that be because they just have a smoother path in life. That's what they thought. But Jesus said, blessed are those who recognize their spiritual need. The spiritually poor, the hungry and thirsty, those who are persecuted, those who are mourned. 
Jesus said, you're not blessed if you're powerful. You're blessed if you're merciful. Because then you receive the kingdom and you'll receive mercy. You're not blessed if you have all the right answers according to Jesus, but you're blessed if you have a pure heart because then you'll receive the benefits of the kingdom. That is, you'll see God. That's why God so often invades our lives in times of deep crisis. And I know some of your stories, and I know that's been your story. God often invades our, time, our lives in times of deep crisis because those are the times when we recognize our spiritual neediness. That's the only time we're dissatisfied enough with ourselves and with our self-salvation projects that we are willing to recognize His right to rule over our lives. I've completely blown it, God. Would you take over? And His response is, finally. If you are self-satisfied, if you're doing just fine, you need not come. Over the years, you have heard me say this before, most of you, but when we were first starting Gateway, Diane and I had moved to Northern Virginia from a poorer neighborhood in the Boston area. And we moved here and could not believe how big your houses were. One of the first things that we did in Starting Gateway is we knocked on doors and surveyed homes. I stole a survey from a church in Southern California to use and just wanted to find out who was in the area, really, and figure out what Northern Virginia was all about. We didn't even have a name for it yet. We weren't a church yet. But I surveyed every home in South Riding. There were 400 at the time. Uh, nothing else was out here. Surveyed a neighborhood in Centerville. Surveyed a couple of neighborhoods in Herndon, Franklin Farm. And surveyed a neighborhood in Reston, a neighborhood in Sterling. Surveyed a large part of Ashburn, Ashburn Village and, and some other parts of Ashburn. I went and knocked on your door. And you answered, and you were a lot friendlier then than you are now, and you weren't as busy then as you are now. So you came to the door, you answered, and I had brown hair and more of it, and I smiled my best toothy grin. I said, hi, my name's Ed, and I'm in the area to start a brand new church. I'm not recruiting, just here to find out who's in Northern Virginia, and I want to do a survey. It'll take less than five minutes. You got five minutes? And remarkably, most of you said yes. It took more than five minutes because you talked longer than you said you were going to. But anyway, so I had my survey and I asked you my seven questions. And over time, I realized something profound about Northern Virginians. I think I saw it because I had been swimming in a different aquarium. You know what I mean. For 12 years, I'd been living in a lower income or working poor neighborhood. I was getting cooked in that soup. That's not where I was raised, but I was getting cooked in that soup. And more and more, I was kind of feeling that ethos, and, that, and that's sort of where Diane and I were, and so we moved here, and this is a completely different kind of aquarium, and I think because it was, I was able to see the water for what it is, because we can rarely see the water of our own aquarium, but I was able to see it, and I knocked on your door, and you answered seven questions, and I realized something critically important about you and I. I realized that you like your lives pretty much, some of you very much. You just want them a little better. And I want you to know that's not a deal Jesus makes. He doesn't take your life and make it a little better. He wants to jerk your attention, arrest you completely, radically redo, reorient you. He wants you to right side up your life. He wants you to have a completely different perspective, a completely different set of assumptions 
on what the good life is. If you're self-satisfied, if you're doing just fine, you need not come. This is why Jesus was so often hard for his first hearers to understand. Some of you know the story of the rich guy that came to Jesus. And not just rich, he was a good dude. He was very religious. He knew the law. He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that is an epic way to start off a great spiritual conversation. So Jesus says, well, you know, obey the law. I mean, honor your father and mother and don't do the things you aren't supposed to do. Do the things you're supposed to do. And this guy said, maybe rightly so. I've done that since I was a youth. What's still lacking? And Jesus said, go sell all that you have then. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And this Northern Virginia religious guy said, wait, what? And Jesus said, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And now he's getting a handle on it because he's sharp. He's Northern Virginia. He's a project manager. He says, wait, what? And Jesus said, yeah. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. This guy says, wait a minute. What? And he went away. What do you think the disciples' response was? What are you doing? Do you realize who that was? I mean, that guy, he lives in Willisford. That guy, I mean, he's loaded. Look, if that guy only gave 2% of his income, we'd be set for the next three months. What are you doing? And he's a really good dude, Jesus. He knows the law backwards and forwards. He's a great family man. He votes right politically. What's going on? And Jesus said, well, it's not about that. And they say the only thing they can say. What? Rich dude, uh, really good guy, that's not the good life? Well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with people it's impossible. You've got to have something more than that, buddy. But with God, anything is possible, even for people like that. Even for people who live in Northern Virginia, it's possible with God. This is why it's so hard for Jesus to be understood today by us. Because deep down inside, deep down inside, really, I know we don't think that we think this, but we really do. When we think of the good life, we think of Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or one of the other members of the Young Billionaires Club. When we think of the good life, we think of Taylor Swift or Kanye West and Kim Kardashian or one of the other members of the Young Beautiful Rich and Famous Club. That's why we work so hard at staying young. That's why we're so worried about getting old. That's why we're so preoccupied with what we look like. 
This is what our culture constantly reinforces. I know that you and I think that we're too sophisticated for that, but we're naive. This stuff infects us and it impacts every decision every day. And it's a lie. Our culture is telling us a lie. If it's true, if what our culture is telling us is true, just one piece of evidence, if it's true, then why is there not a direct relationship between happiness and the young and rich and famous? But those people's lives are falling apart. Every day you read some magazine article about some freaky thing that Kanye West or somebody else has done. Their lives are falling apart. Some of them are, are overdosing with drugs. Why? If our culture is right, then why, those of you who have been to work with the woman that we sponsor in the DR, Ina, those of you who have been with Ina to her village outside of Santo Domingo, those folks who live in, in desperately poor conditions, how do those people even get out of bed? If our culture is right, how are those people not miserable? So, what does this mean for us? It means that we've got to right side up our lives constantly. We've got to right side up our lives and our perspective. So if you'll bear with me for a minute, I'm going to tell you about my Friday. I had a perfect day planned. Friday is often one of the days that I catch up with some of you, and I'll occasionally have lunch with someone or meet someone in the afternoon. Friday morning, I have a lengthy meeting each week, usually with Alex, our associate pastor. And Alex and I talk about this past week and what's happened. We catch up with one another. We talk about the next week and then what's up for that month and then beyond if we have time. And Alex is on sabbatical for a couple of months, so he's away. So I have no Friday morning meeting. I've got a completely clean slate on Friday, and I was really excited about it because this would give me a day to catch up on stuff, and I've got a million things to catch up on. Some of this stuff I've, I've postponed for two or three weeks, so I'm going to check off all those boxes, and I'm going to get rid of all my email and catch up, and I'm so excited, and I have planned Friday because I'm so godly, I've planned that I'm going to take a long prayer walk. So what I do on a prayer walk is try to do this every great now and then. I, I find some theme or some, something that I need to pray about. Maybe it, it might be one thing or it might be a, a large variety of things, and I'll literally go for a long walk and I'll pray. So what I wanted to do on my prayer walk on Friday, and I was so excited about it, I was going to pray about my family. And then I was going to pray about Gateway. So several weeks ago, I had Rhonda Jessup make me a, a list of all the names of those of you who are connected to Gateway, and I've tried to populate that list over the last few weeks with some of your kids' names that weren't on that list and something or one or two things that I know about you, and I was going to take this list and fold it up and put it in my pocket and take my prayer walk, and I was so excited. I went to bed on Thursday night, and I changed my alarm time on Thursday night. Diane was already in bed asleep. I changed my alarm time on Thursday night because I wasn't getting up anymore like I did last week doing that Facebook Live thing at that insane hour, and some of you do that every week, and I don't know how. You're crazy. So I decided I, I, I get to sleep sleep in on Friday morning, and I'm going to have this fantastic, awesome day. So I set my alarm for 7.30 p.m. I hit the p.m. button instead of the a.m. button. And I wake up and look at my phone, and it's 8.30. And I have that feeling like you sometimes have, like, good grief, I, I've, I've missed half the day. So 
what I start to feel already is a little bit of anxiousness and I just want to get going, but instead I look at my email on my phone, in my pajamas, in bed, don't ever do that. And as I did, I realized, I got way more email than I thought I had. This is going to take a lot longer than I thought. And then I got this notification. So I went to a news app, which is the worst thing to do when you're in bed, in your pajamas. And I start looking at crazy news stories that that were happening that week. And the next thing I know, it's 9.30. Now I'm feeling really pressed and frantic. So I get up and and I go downstairs and I open my computer and I start going through the emails. And some emails have been added since I looked at it at 8.30, and I'm getting rid of stuff and responding to stuff, and I'm doing some mental calculus, and I realize, you know, I do not have enough Friday to get done all the things that I need to do on Friday. So I began deciding what I'm going to get rid of, and in the process of doing that, I realized I haven't even read the New Testament yet, and I pastor that stinking church that's reading through the New Testament. So I really, I've got to read the New Testament, a little bit of mental calculus, and I think, okay, I can go read the New Testament, I don't do anything else, it'll take me just five or six minutes, and I'm not going to be able to do my prayer walk today, and so I launch in, and I get rid of email, and then I start finishing up the speech I have to do every Sunday morning, and I'm working on that, and I read about this guy, thinking he's going to tell me some good stuff about the Beatitudes, and he doesn't, it's good stuff, it's not about the Beatitudes, it doesn't help me at all, it feels like a waste of time, and I wasted another half hour, except at the end of that reading, he gives me this illustration of a Navy pilot who's flying upside down. And I thought, that's awesome. I think I can use that. And then all of a sudden I said, Ed, you're flying upside down. I get out of bed. I'm okay. Five minutes later, I'm tilting. Within a couple of hours, I'm flat out inverted. And so I said, forget it. I'm going to go do my prayer walk. So I haven't taken a shower yet, but I put clothes on, and I go for my prayer walk, and I pray for some of you, and I pray for my family, and it was a beautiful day. And I came back home and sat down at my computer, and somehow, and this doesn't always happen, but somehow, there was enough Friday to do all of my Friday. This is critically important. Every time we get wrong-sided, we're in danger. Especially because when we're wrong-sided, if we try to speed up or if we try to get lift, we crash and we don't know why. This is why we end up buying what we can't afford or obsessing about what we can't control or working ourselves to the bone. This is why our schedules feel out of control. This is why we overeat or look at pornography, or drink more than we should. We are wrong side up. So what do we do? Jesus could not have been plainer. Two chapters later, he's in the process of telling us all of the things that we Northern Virginians worry about and think about and obsess about and impose on our children. He says, why are you worried about that? At the end of that section, chapter 6, verse 31, he says this. Therefore, look, don't be anxious, saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What should we wear? For look, Gentiles run after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough anxiousness for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God tomorrow, and then do it on Tuesday, and then do it on Wednesday, and then Thursday and Friday. And then take a break on Saturday and seek first the kingdom of God. Get your plane right side up. Now look, when we get right side up, it doesn't mean that there won't be turbulence. But when there's turbulence, and there will be, when there's turbulence and you're right side up, if you speed up or dodge or lift to get out of the turbulence, what happens is you get through. If you're wrong side up and you hit the joystick and lift, you crash. You don't know why. This is why we gather here on Sunday mornings every week. We don't gather here so that you and I can check our religious box. We gather here on Sunday morning to get right side up. Because some of us, by the time we've gotten through our Saturday, some of us are lilting. And some of us are flat out inverted. And we need to get right side up. And we do that by making declarations and singing songs and praying prayers and listening to what God might have to say to us. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come. Lord, speak to us. Jerk the leash. Arrest us. Wake us up. Get our attention. Uh, Help us with the focus that we need to seek your kingdom first. Your control over our lives, your rulership, turning it over to you. So we do that now in stillness. We turn it over to you. We rededicate our hearts and our minds and our choices to building our lives on you on your love on your direction on your control we surrender completely again Lord in that surrender first of all we worship you we say with heart mind and voices we say you're you're awesome and you're worthy And with heart, mind, and voices, we declare we're going to build on you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, stand with us. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to make this, this next three minutes, a matter of your heart. If you're able to sing without words and close your eyes and make it a prayer, but make this a matter of your heart. We're going to, with heart, mind, and voice, we're going to worship Him. And then we're going to make a declaration about where we're going to build our lives. That's what today is for. So we are going to get right side up in these next few minutes. Let's do it.
could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other Jesus, the only one who could ever say, Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Oh, we live for you. And holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder Show me who you are and fill me With your heart and lead me In your love to those around me all we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, Jesus, Jesus, the name above every other Jesus, the only one who could ever say, You're worthy, Lord. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Holy, holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes. Love. 
And thanks so much for coming this morning. It was great having you. And go in peace, everybody.